Good evening. It's Nicole Lee Master on Coleology, a consciousness podcast. And tonight I have Amanda Deluzak, and she is a marriage family therapy intern working in the East Bay, California. Amanda was called into healing arts after embarking on her own healing journey rooted in birth trauma and pregnancy loss. Today, Amanda is developing a therapy practice that specializes in working with women suffering prenatal bereavement. This can be miscarriage, abortion, stillbirth, or infant death. Prenatal bereavement is a disenfranchised grief. And sometimes grief, and oftentimes grief, shame, and trauma are all part of the constellation of prenatal bereavement. Amanda is also a body, body worker, cranial sacral therapist, and a single mom of an awesome tween and one angel baby. Good evening, and thank you for being with me tonight. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to talk about the work um, that you're doing, and you can really take this in any direction you want to go, and we'll just kind of go where where it goes. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, so I was listening to one of your other episodes with another Amanda. Um, that was maybe an episode or two back. And I got really excited because you were talking about her journey through infertility and adoption. Um, And I felt really excited because um, that kind of material is really what speaks to me in in terms of my clinical practice and also to me personally, um, because I've also dealt with a lot of those same themes. Um, And so I thought maybe it would be interesting to unpack um, miscarriage a little bit more with you and really kind of get into it <laughs> a little, a little even more deeply. If that, that sounds like a good plan. Oh, okay. Yeah. This will be interesting. This will be uh, totally different and I am down. Yes. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like it's, that this is an experience actually that you and I have in common. Yeah, um, that we've both experienced miscarriage, um, and that's something that I think is oftentimes interestingly, it seems like it's something that we don't commonly talk about with one another. Yes. and yet there are so many women who have experienced miscarriage. I think somewhere between ten and fifty percent of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. Yes. So we certainly, we certainly know women who have experienced it, but it's still not something we talk very much about. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, that I was so excited when Amanda, the podcast that you listened to, wanted to just, like, come out and talk about it because, yeah, it's, I think the statistic I heard was, like, one in three or something, and I didn't know anybody who was talking about it until I had mine, and, and even within, um, within the group of people who had um, experienced it after I was talking about it, and really I wasn't even talking about it. I was just a mess. I was just a total mess. Um, There's such a wide range of the way people deal with it, which was really, I mean, I guess surprising and not surprising because it's grief. Exactly. Well, and that's, I'm glad that you named that because that's something I think is really important to hold is that whenever we talk about women's health issues, and particularly when they're related to fertility and pregnancy or pregnancy loss or 
spontaneous abortion or elective abortion. I think it needs to be said that not all women are going to experience that loss in the same way, and they will describe it in their own terms. So, you know, for, for me and my experience with my pregnancy loss, you know, I bonded very early with my child in the pregnancy. It was my second pregnancy. And the pregnancy was very much wanted. It had been really planned. My ex-husband and I were really um, planning on it. It was, you know, part of our, our um, blueprint for our family. And um, so when I lost my child, it was really the this loss of this treasured relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I was absolutely, it, it was the worst day of my life. Yeah. Other women are going to experience it in a really different way. Um, I can imagine scenarios where it could be a relief where yeah. it could be an unburdening, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, particularly if it's not a planned pregnancy or particularly if it, um, you know, if the mother was feeling ambivalent about it, um, particularly if it's a product of a rape, for instance. And mm-hmm. so um, it's just so important to, to have a really big container for all of the different kind of uh, experiences women are going to have in describing and experiencing their loss. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're talking about that because it's so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of all over the board and I think it's really interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, another, another piece of that is, um, that, you know, ideally whenever there is a pregnancy loss of one kind or another and that, you know, it's, it's kind of read in the bio, there's miscarriage, which is, you know, a, a pregnancy loss that's from anywhere from conception up to 20 weeks gestation, or there's a stillbirth, which is what it's considered when when the baby dies in the womb and then um, is given birth to, and that's anywhere from 20 weeks on. Um, there's infant death from, you know, birth to about 28 days um, after birth. Um, mm. But there's... There's a lot of different ways that a woman may experience the grief of that. Um, And so some women are going to feel very supported by their friends and family, and they won't necessarily need any clinical support from a therapist or anything like that, right? They'll sort of go through their own natural process, and and that's great. And other women are going to need and want the support of... um, you know, either a therapist or a support group or something that's a little more specific. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that's what I was kind of surprised, like, um, going back to the other podcast that you listened to with Amanda, who was talking about, um, her experience, she really was supported. Like, I mean, she, it sounded like she was supported. She could talk about it. And I guess like having my own experience around it, I, I was isolated um, because I had just moved. I was a flight attendant. It um, kind of happened on um, the plane, so I had they like had to like I was in a different state when it happened. Um, and then when I was finally home to like recover, I wasn't with like all of my family because they were in a different state. And so I was like super. Um, I was isolated on top of the fact that, I mean, even, even if I was home, um, I would have been really nice to have my mom's support because she was really, um, there to listen to me, but which would have been nice. But, um, 
a lot of the people, for whatever reason, um, didn't understand, like just didn't like fundamentally get it. It was more like, and I think, I think it was, it was more like, you know, oh, well you can get pregnant and you can have another child in the, and that's true. But for me, my process particularly, like I didn't know I wanted to get pregnant. It was a surprise pregnancy. It was my first pregnancy. And I, like you, um, deeply bonded with the with the child that I was carrying very early on for whatever reason, it was like, okay, I'm pregnant. I ha- I went through all the like fear of like, okay, I'm doing this. I didn't ever think I was going to be a mom. And then I was like, okay, I'm yeah. doing this. <laughs> and uh-huh. it became very intimate very quickly. So, um, so yeah, there, it, I think looking back, I, I wish I was in therapy, but, um, I didn't, I didn't, I kind of went through the process by myself and I actually think it made it a a bit more traumatic because I was isolated and crying all the time. I was super depressed. Um, it was really difficult. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, it's a, it's a really, it can be for many women. It's a, it's a very challenging thing to go through, especially, you know, feeling as isolated as it sounds like you did. Yeah. It was like, yeah, the other, Go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing about it is that, you know, you were talking about the, the sort of comments that you would get from people like, oh, you can have another one. You're still young. Right. Um, right. That there's a way where I think people always have, generally speaking, I like to believe people generally have, you know, the best of intentions. But I think that there's so much weird energy around it that they're really not sure what to say or, you know, it's difficult to imagine what might be comforting. Yes. And so we end up getting these kinds of comments. Like I got a lot of, oh, well, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Which Which is another way of, you know, sort of minimizing the loss and kind of, when I talk about disenfranchised grief, that's kind of what I'm pointing at. Um, there's a lot of grief that people experience that isn't necessarily easily recognized by our culture at large. And this, like, it could be something like you know, a miscarriage early on in the pregnancy or a stillbirth. It could be the death of an ex-partner, like an ex-husband or an mm, ex-wife. Yeah. It could be the death of a like a totally beloved pet, or mm-hmm. even losing a job, and then all of the social connections with your colleagues that you had at that at that place. Yeah. Um. So there's this way where you know there are certain kinds of grief that our culture doesn't recognize very clearly, yeah. and so there isn't really a clear ritual around how do we address this with other people and how do we acknowledge it when someone that we know, a friend or a loved one, is, is having a miscarriage. Um, and it can lead to, you know, feeling really isolated, like it sounds like you did, and I know that was certainly my experience, too. And people would say, you know, oh, well, you can have another one. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, I don't really want another one. I wanted this one. <laughs> right. What, what do you think um, that energy is? Is it, like, what what do you think that is, like, creating? Is it just the lack of not talking about it or what, what is that? That's such a good question. I, I love that question. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, and I 
think that it has its roots in shame. Yeah. I think, I think that, um, and actually this kind of ties into, I, just on social media, I decided to put out this very informal survey. Um, it was six questions long, and I was really just looking for three women to respond to it, um, to share what their experience around pregnancy loss had been with me. And um, one of the questions I asked was, how did you feel about your body following your miscarriage? Mm. And first of all, I put up this post on social media, and I, I was really just hoping for three people to respond. And within 10 minutes, I had dozens of responses. Wow. Like, people were wanting to call and talk about it. They were wanting me to email them the survey. There was, like, this really clear desire for women to be able to talk about it and to be asked about their experience around miscarriage, which first of all I thought was really interesting. But then the, the second part of it was in response to that one question about how did you feel about your body following the miscarriage, most women responded with things like, I felt angry mm-hmm. at my body, I felt betrayed by my body, I felt like um, one person said it's even in the word I miscarried. Mm. Right, like I did it wrong. Oh. I carried my baby wrong. Yeah. Um, and so, and there's also, you know, I'm sure you're aware of that sort of, I don't know what to call it, if it's an old wives' tale or like a cultural moray, but there's that thing where, oh, well, you shouldn't tell people that you're pregnant until you're in your second trimester. Yeah, actually, uh, that is that is what people say. And I mean, right. yeah. I mean, right, and and the, and I have to imagine part of the reason why is oh well, gosh, you know, if I if I tell everyone too early and then I lose the pregnancy, then I have to go back and retell them that no, I'm not pregnant anymore, and how embarrassing would that be? Well, so that's kind I of funny, that a- actually. That is exactly so. When I got pregnant, because then I purposely got pregnant with my son after that, like so, my son that yeah. I have now, and and I was um, because I did tell everyone. Once I found out, because I was so excited after, like, I mean, so, like, I started telling everyone in the first pregnancy uh, right away. And then, so, the second pregnancy, I didn't tell anybody just for the fear of, like, actually it happening um, again. Sure. And I think I didn't, I haven't, actually, I haven't even unpacked this um, because I deal with, like, I think um, just different issues in my own therapy, which would be kind of interesting to unpack with my therapist is like, what was that? Like, I think shame is such a powerful, yeah, I think you're pointing to something. um, Yeah. That, so like what, it's like, we're not like, we're not good enough or we're not created right. I mean like a core, like, or, or we're not capable or something as females, like some like primal, primal shame or something. Are are you thinking? Yeah, I think that that, that's all part of it. And I also think the other piece of it is it's so right. I mean, like in some ways, and I'm talking about this in a pretty heteronormative kind of a context. I just need to name that. Yeah. I'm glad you are. (laughs) But in a lot of, But in a lot of ways, for a lot of women, it's sort of like our biological imperative is to is to be fertile and bear children, right? That's sort of um, it, it's sort of an ancient imprint um, in some ways, and I think even beyond that, um, you know, there's this experience, and I think this is an experience that sort of can be generalized to grief and as a whole, but 
that there's this this experience of having an expectation and mm. then not having it manifest mm. that that creates the sense of oh I there must be shame is you know the belief that there must be something wrong with me yeah so there's there's that and also shame serves this purpose which is it, it's a binding emotion so it binds with other very difficult emotions that are too much for us to deal with and it obscures them it shame's job is to hide right and to avoid oh so I love actually to these I love that you're um naming and talking about this actually so uh because I feel like you are providing some type of um growth edge for me shame shame has been a tricky a tricky one for me personally so um obviously then as I said as a therapist it's um also tricky for me as a professional so I love that you're talking about this okay so so shame shame you're calling it a binding emotion yeah okay uh-huh. and so please yeah. speak more to that okay I love this thank yeah. you yeah good I'm glad and you're certainly not alone <laughs> I've got, I've got my own shame as well, and I'm sure many of the people who are going to listen to this podcast have some experience with it, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so shame, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so, we all do, right? Yeah, exactly, right. So it's a binding emotion. I mean, in some ways, it's actually adaptive because it it takes that which might be overwhelming otherwise and squirrels it away and sort of conceals it so that we can sort of pretend that it's not there. Yeah. And it becomes a problem when it prevents us from showing up with with our full authenticity in our lives. Mm. And it, it comes up and it, it shows up as a problem when we're not able to engage fully, when we develop, you know, as as these women in the surveys were expressing, like these, these really painful, really negative feelings about their bodies. And that was certainly my experience as well following my miscarriage. It was like, oh my God, you know, I can't, I, I can't believe that I did this. I can't believe that my body betrayed me like this. Mm, yeah. And, right, and so shame has a way, I mean, in a way, it's sort of trying to protect us, um, but it, it gets in the way of our healing. And really the, the way for shame to sort of be released is to connect with other people. It's when you restore that interpersonal bridge between people that, you know, like you and I are kind of reflecting each other's experience back and forth right now. Um, and there's a way where just naming, I've got shame, and oh, I have shame too. Right. Um, and we've both had these similar experiences of pregnancy loss, that there's a little bit of healing that can happen in, in moments like this, because we know that we're, we're not alone. And it wasn't that we did something wrong or bad. You know, there isn't anything wrong with you as a person right right? and there's nothing wrong with me as a person right right hmm so do you think um so do you think shame has its root roots in like um body image issues then I think it's often part of it yeah I think it is often part of it and shame is the belief that you know I'm I'm wrong there's something wrong with me um, which is different from feeling guilty right? right like if you feel guilty you know that you could do better like you know that you're a good person and maybe that you made a bad decision and then you feel guilty about it 
Right. Because you know about your own value and you know about your own worth. Shame is there's something wrong with me at the core. Um, and so that certainly is going to play a role in body image issues. Um, and that's, you know, if we're talking about in, through the lens of miscarriage, that's something that a lot of women are dealing with in particular. I mean, like, imagine, you know, if a woman is carrying a pregnancy through, uh, you know, her second trimester and then the baby dies and she's got stillbirth or, um, you know, or something along those lines, right. her body will have changed a lot. Right. Like, that, that's just a fact, right? And right. And we know that, I, I think that, um, you know, then, then we get into issues around lactogenesis, right? Like, after, after the baby is gone, our bodies may continue to respond in ways that are preparing for the baby. So our milk may come in. Right. We may have uterine contractions. Like, and all of these are... It can be very difficult and very evocative experiences, um, and it can lead to this sense of dissonance between what's really happening and what my body is doing. Right. Wow. Wow. What you're doing is really powerful and amazing. I guess um, this, like, area of expertise that you're kind of going into, um, are you in private practice then? Because... Like, you don't really hear of a lot of therapists doing this type of work. Uh, do you know a lot of people, like, do you, that you get to bounce these type of ideas off of? Like, where, this is a cool niche. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about working with, with women who need this kind of support. I think it's so worthy, and it's been so overlooked, and it really needs to come out of the shadows and into the light. Um, I, I've been developing this sort of slowly over time, um, in terms of my own personal healing as well, because I, I need to make sure that, you know, I'm doing my work as right. a practitioner, as a, you know, right. <laughs> so that I can sit with this material. Um, mm -hmm. that's really important. Um, so yeah, I've, um, I, I'm doing a healing shame certification, so I've got a mentor um, around the shame work in particular, which I've identified myself as a really key component um, to healing from um, pregnancy loss um, and from perinatal bereavement. I think that's a really big part of the thread um, that needs to be addressed. Um, I know that there are, you know, like in hospitals, they've got standards of care for women who are, who are experiencing perinatal bereavement. bereavement. Um, but yeah, in terms of private practice, it's all about, you know, I am in private practice and so I'm, I'm finding, um, supervisors who have some competency around this for me, um, so that we can, you know, bring these, bring these clients into, into the practice. Okay. So, um, so you are actually getting more of a specialty in shame currently right now. Okay. Yep. Yeah, because you're already yeah. speaking in such a way that I'm like, oh my gosh, I have, I mean, I already know I have so much to learn in so many different areas. And um, that's actually part of why I'm doing the podcast is because I feel like it's just such um, an informative way to be part of the community and gather information. But like, as you were speaking, I was like, wow, I really don't understand shame 
I mean, I, I think I can name it and I can sit with it and like, but I don't really understand its roots, um, in the way you're speaking of it. And when you were talking, I'm like, oh yeah, that like something about what you're saying just like resonates as true. Um, so thank you for like even touching on that because I think I have some work to do around some shame stuff. Yeah. Well, welcome, welcome to my club. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think that a lot of us are really struggling with shame and we may not even have the words for it, you know, and, and that is the nature of shame. I mean, that's shame's job. It's sort of, um, it's sneaky like that. And, you know, as a clinician, it shows up in the room, you know, when we sort of collude with our clients in not bringing up the hard stuff, right, or in um, avoiding avoiding the shadow work. Um, so it, it's, it's really powerful work um, when we begin kind of unpacking what shame is. And I think in a lot of ways, and I know you've got this background in somatic experiencing, there's a lot of ways where shame and trauma kind of run parallel to each other. Yes. And, you know... It, Right, and if I bring it back to the to the lens of, of pregnancy loss, like oftentimes this is a, a medical trauma, um, and so right. there, there's a way where this information that you know that I know you know about about trauma really comes into play as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's really what the work that you're doing is, yeah, because I mean, like the body, the body remembers, and then there's a way in which we store it, and then it's not being talked about, and then shame has a whole another layer. And I think that, like, I think what's interesting um, about the work you're doing is like a lot of the trauma work that, um, particularly like quote unquote trauma work that, I'm particularly doing in the world, or I know my colleagues are, uh, it's like, I think shame's always there, but they're, they're like traumas that like people are at least talking about that are, um, known traumas that like somehow, um, under the paradigm of thought in the social, social construct we're in are at least like known, right? So there's like where I think like, what you're getting at and I'm completely agreeing is like where you're working, we're not like really labeling I, I as a culture. I'm not saying I'm not, but like as a culture, we're not really yes. labeling yes. these things as trauma, but they are. And so it's almost even, it's all, it's even sneakier. It's like a layer. The shame is like a layer more embedded in the process, which is really mm-hmm. kind of interesting what you're kind of, like you're where you're kind of going with this it's like and I and I haven't even really thought of it because I haven't worked in this way so um and I haven't even actually applied that lens to my own experience which is really interesting because I mean I've been really dedicated to my own therapy process for a very long time and I haven't really brought in my miscarriage um even though I still have kind of which is really See, so you are very synchronistic in my process right now, and so thank you. Um, but I, I'm so glad. Yeah, thank you. Like, but I still have kind of, you know. Um, so I carry around a lot of 
trauma that could, I don't like to like actually sit with the diagnosis, but like I have like some PTSD type things. And, um, so part of my miscarriage, I have actual like kind of flashbacks of moments, um, in that whole process for me, uh, that I haven't unpacked, you know? And I think maybe because like my other traumas have been bigger and I'm working on being, more resilient and resourceful and regulation, um, that I haven't really unpacked this with my therapist because it's, you're speaking to like how it's kind of embedded in the shame. Like, Oh, that's not, that's, that's not that important. It's kind of like where my brain goes, which is really interesting. Right. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty powerful. Yeah, you just named something super powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's just, I mean, and I think what you're doing is wonderful because, like, you're kind of breaking some type of, like, embedded cycle in um, in our system right now, right? Like, you're starting to talk about how it is actually correlated to trauma and how we really do need to start talking about it more and get the get help around it and... I don't know. It's really interesting. I'm kind of actually mind blown for a second. <laughs> no, I really yeah, am. I, I'm, I'm so glad. And I have to say, I mean, in my experience with pregnancy loss, I had memories um, that I would that I would characterize as trauma memories, right? Like there's one in particular, and I'm not, I'm not going to go into great detail on it just so I can stay regulated. But I have, you know, some memories that are, really um sort of very crystal clear in a way that's a little bit different than my conventional memories Mm, mm -hmm. and um I know that that's a place in in those moments where um there's been some work for me to do around it Mm -hmm. and honestly the other piece of it is that um it really required time and space me to address it in a in a really complete way mm. um, because there's the there's a backlog of, of energy that was in my system about it um, and it was sort of little by little letting that come through and process through in my system um, and then there was okay like this energy is is running through freely now and I feel like you know it's not it's not trapped in there as much anymore um, and now I need a reparative experience. Mm. Um, actually, I think I, it, it, if it's okay with you, maybe I will share a little bit about what my memory is. Yeah. Is that okay with you? Yes, please. Okay. Um, so I have a I have this memory um, where I've been. Uh, so with my with my miscarriage, um, I didn't I didn't know that my baby had died. I my baby had died at the end of my first trimester, and I carried her for another month. Mm. Um, and I didn't find out until, you know, my second trimester sonogram that there was no more heartbeat. And so, you know, I went home. It was the day before Valentine's Day. Mm. I woke up on Valentine's Day morning, and my water broke. Oh. So then I had to go to the ER, and I started miscarrying naturally, which, um, you know, in, in some way I think of as... Uh, I'm glad that it happened that way. Um, otherwise, I would have needed the DNC procedure. Um, so there's this way where I had the time to sort of be with the process of my miscarriage, if that makes sense. Like yes. I see it. 
and I could see what was happening as upsetting it in the, in the moment as it was. Um, but right, you know, towards the end of the day, I'd been in the ER, the, my OBGYN finally came in and she wanted to do an exam and she said, oh, well, I, you know, I can see that there's some tissue there. Mm-hmm. And she was referring to my baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. she said, there's some tissue sitting right on top of your cervix. I just need to, to make sure that we clear that out. So she did. And I was so exhausted by the end of it. I mean, it was just an emotionally, completely devastating day. Yeah. And, um, you know, this was a procedure that wasn't particularly pleasant um, when, when she was needing to, to remove everything. Um, and... I have this memory in my mind of her um, pulling out the, the, the sack where the, you know, in quotes, the, what is it, the contents of conception, mm, yeah. <laughs> where, where my baby was, right? right. And I, I have this memory of her just sort of like crumpling it in a paper towel and sticking it on a shelf behind mm, her. Yeah, yeah. And I had earlier in the day, really thought to myself, I really want to be able to look at my baby, like whatever it is. Right. Even if it's just a tiny speck or even if it's nothing much to look at that is discernible, I just want to be able to see it. By the end of the day, I was so fatigued and exhausted and overwhelmed and, you know, traumatized that I didn't think to ask. And so for me, actually, a lot of my healing, but this is now 10 years later, okay? So now actually part of my healing process has been to look at images of embryos that are about that stage of development. Mm. Just so that in my mind I have a reference point. Like, oh, she would have looked like that. Or that's what would have been there probably. Yeah. And that's that was the, been like a reparative experience for me at this stage in my healing. I think any earlier in my stage of healing, it would have been triggering and upsetting. It would have been re-traumatizing. Um, but I've done enough work getting the backlog of energy processing through my system. And at this point, seeing those images has been, like, just, it's actually been beautiful. It's like, you know, these beautiful little little babies right. um, that I now have a reference point for in, in my mind's eye. Um, and that's been hugely important for my healing, I would say, just even within this last year. Wow. I Like, so I love eight. Thank you so much for sharing that piece. Um, mm-hmm. I feel very honored to have heard your story and then how it's unfolded for you and where you are. So thank you so much. Um, yeah. And I, I love that you're speaking to like where you are now versus then and like why you could process something maybe so like not maybe so important but you needed the space and time and I don't I don't know so in these podcasts I have these moments where so this is what I think so beautiful when when we're when we're in these spaces and we're talking about these deep things and our work in the world which happens to somehow always come back to our work in the world has been like uh, the wounded healer or because we have our own stuff really. Um, and then, (laughs) right. And so, so as you, as you were speaking, um, I had this glimpse, this moment where I was like, Oh, maybe, maybe that's why it's coming back right now. And I don't want to create too much of a story around it. Um, but 
you speaking to like being ready now and like doing this work. So I, I don't, my, my memory, uh, yeah, like what you just named is super powerful and you're like hitting something that feels super deep for me. So like I have a ton of anxious attachment stuff, uh, that's been up for me since my miscarriage, um, that I wouldn't have like maybe labeled as anxious attachment until, uh, the past two years, it's just like upped its ante. And I think that that's because I, um, put myself in some situations that were pretty like, well, I didn't think that they were absurd at the time, but reflecting, I I've been in some pretty absurd, um, relationships, which upped the ante with my anxious attachment. But I've said several times, I didn't feel like I had anxious attachment, um, before, like I would have said, maybe I actually had like ambivalence. Um, most of my life I, I would disengage. I didn't really care. And something shifted around my miscarriage point. And as you were talking about your memory, right? So you have this like crystal clear memory of like how this kind of unfolded and like it impacted you in certain ways. My memory is me. So I was all by myself. I didn't even get to have my own OBGYN. I was in a hospital. I didn't even, I wasn't familiar with because like I was, uh, based in another city. So I was literally by myself. And, um, the father of my child that I have now was the person I was pregnated, uh, impregnant, impregnated. Is that the proper term? <laughs> uh, with, with that I had my miscarriage and, um, he was, so he was here in California and like, he couldn't get out because he just had a new job and he couldn't come see me for a whole day. So like, I'm left in the ER by myself with like these random doctors and no friends because all of my friends were um, on flight. So I was like, seriously, I had to take a cab by myself. And the memory I have is just me being home in, um, so when you're a flight attendant, you live in crash pads a lot of the times if you're commuting. Like, so I was like, my home was with my boyfriend here in California, but my crash pad was in Washington, DC. Uh, and you would do your flights out of Washington and then you would get a, um, a slot of days off and then I would come home, but I was in my crash pad all by myself. And I'm just like, I'm crying. I'm alone. I'm afraid. And, um, and I'm just like, I'm confused. I'm like all the, all the feelings and, uh, and I'm angry too. I'm angry because my boyfriend couldn't get out to see me quick enough. And so I wasn't feeling important. And I feel like there's something there that I, that I'm ready to process that has to do with like the shift of like my drastic attachment with anxiety. Um, and, and I, I think it's interesting because I think i primarily believed attachment styles and maybe you can speak to this maybe you have a lens that even though this is like out of what we're talking about but I'm sure it kind of like goes back into what we're talking about like I think I primarily believed attachment styles were something that like we were conditioned at, at a younger age to kind of learn and that's the way we navigated in the world mostly and this is kind of like it like we become conscious of it as we get older or not and then we kind of like do these relationships in this way but my experience or memory of my attachment style wasn't like that until my later adulthood. I'm 39 now, and I would say like somewhere around like 20 something, I started experiencing some anxious attachment. But after my miscarriage, it like w went 
way high, like zoomed up. And I'm wondering if you, uh, if that's like something common, like, like if that's common, like, I mean, I guess I'm just, I'm like, I think like you naming some things right now and sharing your experience is giving me like a different lens through my experience to view something that I haven't really looked at. And as, as a clinician, I'm kind of wondering, um, do attachment styles shift through trauma sometimes? Mm-hmm. Wow, that is a really cool question. Um, I My take on it, and I'm just kind of thinking through this with you right now in real time, um, but I have to imagine, so first of all, when we lose a pregnancy or we lose a relationship with the baby that we're carrying, if that's the way that we conceive of it and that's our experience of the pregnancy, then that is an attachment wound, right? Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden that, that person is no longer there. Right. And there's something really, I think miscarriage in particular is a really unique kind of grief because it it's literally the embodiment of grief. It's It's... You know, you, I mean, I don't mean to like wax poetic here, but there's a hollowness, there's an emptiness, mm. there's a there's an awareness of a lacking of right, right, um, right. The, the that expectation that we had, but that we didn't receive, yeah. right? The expectation of of this person, yeah, and it's something that is actually occurring within our bodies, right. Right. It's actually physiologically occurring. So these concepts that I think we attach to, to grief or maybe trauma or attachment wounding, they can be very conceptual and sort of floating up in the sky like clouds. But when we bring it down to pregnancy loss and miscarriage, it becomes really real really quickly. Right. And it's because it's an embodied experience. There's no way to get around the fact that it's an embodied experience. Right. Um and so there's that piece of it. Um, but I think also um, I some of the ways that I see attachment working, particularly with the couples I work with in my practice, is that sometimes depending on the relationship, different aspects are sort of highlighted or brought into the forefront. And so you may present slightly differently with one partner than you would with another, if that makes sense. Kind of based on the way that each person's um, personality structure, you know, complements the other. Um, right. That's another piece of it. That right. Probably and then certainly there's there's the trauma, right? So there's um, there's ways in which trauma can, um, I mean, it, it can impede our capacity to be able to really. Um, I mean, we our our nervous system gets hijacked if we get. Right. Um, and so that impacts our capacity to be present, to to be relational, um, to be calm, to be in the parasympathetic right. with our with our people, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. So I don't know, those are sort of like three strands that I can you know, I'm just sort of thinking through it with you aloud. Um yeah. That's related to what you're talking about. Yeah, and I like that you're talking. Uh, yeah, I like, I mean, yes. So, yes. And if I have to say, like, when you name those three, thanks, thanks for doing this actually with me right now, because I think that there's yeah. something, there's something there with, and if you're naming, when you name those three areas, I think all of them are true, right? Like, I mean, 
each of us reflect something different in one another. And so it brings up aspects. Yes. And then I think for me, what resonates super true with the third part was, um, you're, I, I get hijacked pretty easily. Like, <laughs> yay. <laughs> and, and I think something about what you just said feels true. Like, so as you were talking, I'm like thinking like, oh yeah, like I had no control of that loss. Right. So, and, and something was leaving me and I didn't want it to leave me. And so like, I think maybe it, it sends my um, amygdala firing anytime the thought of something leaving when I'm not ready or not choosing it, right? Like, so in a deep, yeah. unconscious, unprocessed way, I think uh, maybe my miscarriage kind of represents that in like real time, right? So, I, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, that's really cool unpacking um, and super insightful. Hmm. And the thing that, the word that you just used that really like sparkled to me when I was listening to you is, is the, the lack of control piece. Hmm. Um, I think that that's a really difficult and, and really sort of salient experience for a lot of people who are experiencing grief. And it kind of, you know, it, it can come into um, the spiritual realm. It's sort of like, I I don't have any, I, I thought that I could reasonably expect to be maybe safe in the world, or I thought I could reasonably expect that I would be okay. Um, I could reasonably expect that the people I love would, would be safe and be around me. Mm-hmm. And then when something like this happens, and that's jeopardized, or that's threatened, or it's annihilated, um, we, 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 it becomes very clear, like, oh, there are things over which I, I don't have any control. Right. Um, and that is really unnerving. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very difficult space to inhabit. And those are, you know, moments when ideally if we, if we have sort of a spiritual framework, maybe, maybe we, we rely on that. Um, it, it can call into question for some people, you know, like, I thought I knew what the universe was doing, <laughs> right. and then this happened. Right, and it can sort of shake the earth beneath you. Right, um, and so that's just a, I don't know the loss of control piece. I, I know for me in my experience that was the huge. That was like a big part of it was the sense of this is not fair. Yeah, this is totally not fair. I have no control over this, and it doesn't make any sense. Right, and that's kind of for me that was at the heart of my of my bereavement. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I could tell that like the work that you're doing in the world is like so suited for you and how lucky people who find you are seriously. Like, yeah, I have a question with the craniosacral part. Do you, um, get to work as an intern and bring in the cranial sacral aspect or is that two very separate things that you do um, professionally at the same time or? So this is a really exciting part of, of, of the, of this is the part of the work that, that I do that I get really excited about is I do incorporate touch with clients for whom it is appropriate because it's not always appropriate for every client. Yeah. But because I, you know, I have a background in massage therapy and craniosacral therapy, one of my supervisors does as well. Um, oh, and cool. so when I'm, yeah, so, um, you know, when we're dealing with 
fertility, pregnancy loss, um, those kinds of issues, there can be a lot of um, stored experiences in in the pelvic floor, for mm. instance. Mm. Um, and so there's some really beautiful work that can be done um, using touch, either, you know, practitioner touching the client or the client using self-touch um, to bring awareness to areas that might have gotten, you know, walled off. Yeah. Um, because they didn't feel safe. Yeah. Or because there's too much shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of interesting to understand, you know, you can kind of imagine how in some ways um, if, if you didn't have any control over losing this pregnancy um, and it was just happening to your body, um, that there could develop a tension in the pelvic floor yes. around needing control. Yes. And then, and then this kind of really deep holding in that deep diaphragm of the body, how that can impact... Um, sexual function, it can impact elimination functions, um, it, can, it can impact a lot of different things. And so really slowly and gently building up somatic awareness that encompasses those areas of the body um, is part of the work. Um, there's some, you know, gentle kinds of yoga that we can do in session. There's um, different kinds of bolstering that we can do in session. I'm sorry, what was that last part, bolstering? Bolstering, yeah, bolstering. So um, supports with pillows or supports with yoga blocks or, you know, finding a way to help support the body so that it feels comfortable and safe for the client to kind of drop into awareness um, in that part of the body. Oh, my gosh, this is so cool. Would you, um, so as you know, I'm like, I did the somatic experiencing, but I don't have the background like you with the body work or the craniosacral and so like part of my trajectory um, in the future is I want to um, do some more touch training so I can go deeper into the body in in this way that you kind of speak of which um, which will probably look very different because I don't have the craniosacral um, background um, or I'm not a massage therapist but I do have yoga and um, so I do some yoga in session as well but I kind of was wondering professionally like what are you noticing when you're able to drop in with a client in this way like um so like you just spoke to a few different things that I I think seem super interesting like where shame kind of sits in your body and then you kind of wall off like so like is it like Places, so I've had my own experience because I go to um, a psychotherapist who also does a lot of touch work. And I always use, I don't know, I mean, this is something I've come up with, but I feel like um, parts of my body are like offline through disassociation. Um, Yeah. And would you speak a little bit about the shame aspect? Is that like, is it walled off? Is it like disassociated? Is that what we're. Or yeah, it's yes. You're right on the money. It's the shame freeze. Okay, so it's the shame it, freeze. Physiologically, it functions in much the same way okay. um, as right. So you develop maybe um, areas of numbness. Yeah. Um, areas that are just difficult to drop into in terms of somatic awareness. Um, areas that um, there might be even um, if you're somatically tracking. 
um, the posture or the gait of, of a client. Um, you might be able to notice areas of, um, they call it, you know, segmenting, um, where there's a lack of mobility. Mm. Um, and so when, you know, oftentimes when I'm, when I'm doing touch work, what I'm, what I'm experiencing through, through the subtle palpation of my hands is actually, um, I would describe it as the, the charge of the nervous system. So mm. I get a sense through my hands of, um, is the nervous system really ramping up? I call it, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to anyone else because it's so subjective, but to me it feels sparkly. Yeah. So if I, I can lay my hands on a client and I get a sense of, okay, things are pretty active right now and maybe we need to work on some grounding okay. um, as, as a counterbalance. Yeah. Um, or lay my hands on a client and it feels like, oh, there's, there's maybe not much happening here. I wonder if there's a little bit of dissociation in this area. I wonder how it would be to find a safe place in the body first as an anchor and then to sort of just pendulate back and forth a little bit between the safe place and this, this other place that I'm sensing something. Mm. Um, and so we kind of work in that way, um, just, you know, by sizing it little by little so that it's not overwhelming. I don't want to send anyone out into, um, you know, the ethers. Um, <laughs> but really, <laughs> really working towards embodiment, um, you know, little by little by little. Yeah. Wow. That sounds super cool. So, um, the reason why I even know that I'm kind of interested in getting into touch work is the last, the third year of somatic experiencing, you get yeah. to start touch work. So like I have enough that I could feel comfortable being in a room with the client and putting my hands on them at this time and not worrying about, um, I know this is so sad. I like, I hate to say this, but I work for, um, you know, a nonprofit organization. And so I'm not working for myself. So we still have the, these like big overarching, like this is okay. This isn't okay. And because I've had that year, I, I, I can hold it in a way that I'm allowed to like hug or touch a client and I, I don't have to worry about being sued. Um, but yeah. like, I mean, and, and, and that's real. Um, but I'm not yeah. doing any of the, this work that was kind of like just touched on, like it was just like the, the surface of a whole new world that was broke open for me in that last year of touch work. And, um, it was talking about like the regulation, the co-regulation, the pendulation between areas, not like being able to read the thresholds, which, um, you're speaking to, right? Like what, what your energetic sense was of it being numb or sparkly, which I love that. Like, I, I don't know you well, but I, I've come in contact with you uh, throughout the JFK experience, and um, sparkly feels like a word you should be saying. So (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. I love it. It feels like what I would put with you. Like, it's really cool. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I think it's really inspiring hearing that you're actually doing this work in the room. And... um, it just, you know, it kind of speaks to my 
sense of like, yeah, yeah, there's something like that's right. Because I need to pick a direction I'm still kind of moving toward. And that's kind of like what I've been holding where I want to go into the touch work realm. Um, and I love that you're doing that. I think, I think that there's some parts of the psychotherapy that can't be reached without connection. I don't, I don't know. Maybe oh, man, yeah. yeah. No, you're so right on. I, I totally am with you 100%. Here, this is my take on touch. Touch is a, it's a direct experience. Mm, yeah. And so there's a way where it's really easy to bypass things and come up into cognition, which is a place where most clients are pretty comfortable because that's a place where our culture is really comfortable. We're sort of molded to be comfortable up here. And if you could see me, you would see me gesturing like up in the air above my head. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like not not in not in your head, like above your head. <laughs> exactly. Like up 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 over here. And so there's this way where. Um, when we do work with touch, um, there's a, it, it is a direct experience in the body. And here's the thing, is healing happens in the present moment. Right. It can't happen in the past. It, it doesn't happen in the future. It happens right now. Right. And when you apply touch to a client's nervous system, really clean, really informed, really um, considered touch, in session, um, it provides the client with an opportunity to have a new experience. Mm, yeah. um, and that is really what it's all about for me. That's sort of like if I had to put my therapeutic paradigm in a nutshell, that would be it. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say from the receiving end, because my therapist is uh, I, I don't go a session without some type of contact. Like, And I literally leave there feeling different I mean like that something like something had shift shifts in my system every time and and I really correlate it to the touch that's going on so um yeah super powerful and can I ask you one other thing and I know that we're getting close to wrap up time but um you spoke and this is just interesting to me because I'm seeing a chiropractor who is doing a lot of diaphragmic work on me um and it's been really good for my system um probably he's not he's not um trained in SE so I think that at times I'm I'm probably knowing my own system like the work that he's doing even though amazing and healthy and healthy it's probably going way over threshold for me but uh if I if I have to like choose to have the work or not to have the work like I'm I'm gonna have the work because it's just opened up a whole new thing but um so I'm really all about the diaphragms right now and I'm kind of wondering so like so in SE, the third year, they, they talk about how, like, all of our diaphragms kind of, like, ping one another. And considering you're kind of trained in this, I was wondering if you can kind of speak to this in a way that, like, um, that will sound – well, that's all, I, that's all I have, really. So I experienced <laughs> – like, so they kind of talk to one another. So, like, if you're working on the right knee, it's, like, also somehow, um, co- like – regulating the left side of your body and then also like like say like my 
he's been working a lot on my diaphragm by my lungs because it's just so sucked up, lack of better words. And what uh-huh. I'm noticing is like when he works on my diaphragm up by my lungs and like kind of pulls it down and it's able to hold for a couple days before it like rolls back up. Um, I also have um, a correlating experience of the diaphragm on my pelvic floor, kind of like doing some yeah. type of shifting. And I kind of wonder if you could kind of speak to that because um, I'm just having like more of an experience around it than like really knowing what, what's going on. Sure. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. So yeah, um, I don't even know where to start. So, um, in terms of the diaphragms and in particular the respiratory diaphragm and the pelvic floor, the diaphragm of the pelvis, um, this has been huge for me. It's been huge for me personally, and it's been huge for me um, in my work with clients. So I think the vast majority of us, I mean, if you, we all kind of know what Kegel exercises are, yeah. um, you know, yeah. where, where we sort of tighten the muscles of our pelvic floor, right? right? So most of us imagine when we, when we tighten the muscles of the pelvic floor, we imagine doing that on an inhale. And when we exhale, we imagine releasing them. And in reality, when the two diaphragms, respiratory diaphragm and the diaphragm of the pelvis, are working in a coordinated way, it's just the inverse. Because as the diaphragm moves down, when we inhale, the pelvis, the pelvic floor needs to relax so the contents of our abdomen can descend. Oh. And then when we're inhaling, it's moving down. When we're exhaling, it's coming up. Oh, interesting. So they're kind of working, op- they're working opposite. Like so, so as I inhale, um, my diaphragm up near my move chest down. ribs move down, and then all my organs move down, and so does my pelvis floor. Yes. It moves down. Yes, ideally, okay. the pelvic floor softens. Okay. Right. Yes. So there's there's a re, there's a relationship there. Um, however, so that's in a, in a, like when things are functioning in an ideal sort of perfect enchanted forest unicorn kind of way, right? <laughs> I love that place. But, <laughs> but um, oftentimes, what what happens is we imagine inhaling and tightening, right, and exhaling and releasing. So so the pelvic floor diaphragm and the and the respiratory di- diaphragm are sort of working against each other. Um, and so that's that's a huge connection, and it's something that I'm still myself working with, um, is, okay, cool, my, my diaphragm is descending, so I'm going to be consciously working on softening my pelvic floor. Oh. And then when my diaphragm is ascending, I'm going to consciously be working on tightening my pelvic floor. And... This work is huge for anybody who, I mean, it's huge for everybody. Like, everybody should develop a a friendship with their pelvic floor. Yeah. (laughs) But in particular, women who, um, I don't know if if you've had this experience, but certainly when I gave birth to my son, there was episiotomy, there was tearing, there was all types of things that happened. Right. Um, And so, you know, my pelvic floor was different after I was healed up from giving birth and certainly my pelvic floor was different after my pregnancy loss. So there's a way where working with these structures helps to bring that awareness back to these 
structures again um, that have been, you know, they've been stretched or injured or repaired and scar tissue and all of those things that happen right. um, that are, you know, normal and natural and part of life. Um, so there's, there's this way that we can work with our pelvic floor really by also working with our respiratory diaphragm, which is what it sounds like you're working with. Um, your chiropractor on. Yeah, which like just like kind of unfolded in like this way. I'm like, whoa, like I'm noticing this is happening too. And also I thought the diaphragm and maybe, I'm sorry, I could like now, now I want to just do like a whole podcast with you about like um, body awareness and understanding and breaking down the body and like what's going on. Like, I don't know, maybe would you like to do a whole nother podcast like where there's like some education around what's going on in the body like because seriously there there's like so much going on but um I I thought the diaphragm was like this like this um kind of umbrella that kind of like reached through the rib cages but I didn't realize that it like it was so pliable that it kind of like rolls and like twists and so um I don't even know what it's made out of and like how does it end up getting twisted and like what type of um like when when I'm breathing normal and my diaphragm's not rolled up into my rib cage I'm realizing I I have a different way of being in the world like literally like I have a different lens I'm looking at and as soon as it rolls up I have a whole different way of like um how it impacts my psyche and I think it's just because my breath is not coming in as normal and isn't as full and and like I just think that there's there's something really there um and as as a therapist and somebody who's like I'm dedicated to like this uh, psychological work I'm finding that something about the diaphragm feels like wow, if you're not looking at that in a holistic way, like all the work you want to do on the psyche and with the psyche and like, it, it's great, like tools and resources, it's wonderful. But like the realistic thing that's happening in my journey currently is like when I can breathe better <laughs> because my diaphragm's in place, I have a more capacity and I have better thoughts and I feel more resilient and I'm like holy like that's not being talked about at all really right and so what you're talking about is this concept of psychophysical parallelism right like that the the body gives rise to the mind story so whatever is going on with our thoughts is likely also going on with our body and vice versa and what did what did you just what did you just call that um, psychophysical parallelism. Mm, I have to read about I this. I believe, yeah, I think that's probably lifted from Stanley Kellerman. Um, my dear friend and mentor, Bill Bowen, um, oh, yeah. used to talk about that a lot. I only, and, I was um, only lucky enough to do, like, two little classes with him at JFK, so I didn't, and this sounds like something he might speak to. Would you Would you please yes. um, go into that just a little, and then and then maybe we can um, reschedule another podcast to go deeper. Like it will be like the next podcast can go deeper into this because I'm so interested. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Okay. Yeah, psychophysical parallelism. So Bill Bowen would always say, 
the body gives rise to the mind story. So, you know, it, it's kind of pointing at the false dualism between the mind and the body. Um, mm-hmm. And really honoring the fact that they are inextricably linked mm-hmm. and that we embody our beliefs. And so what you're speaking to is having the, the physical, the physiological experience of, I'm not sure how you characterize it, but maybe of your anxiety or of your worry of whatever, right? When your diaphragm, as you say, gets rolled up into your cage. Right. So those, those two things are, are um, they're phenomena that are related to each other. Right. It sounds like in yes. experience. Yes, I'm way higher anxiety, way more worrying when I can't breathe. And I didn't even know I couldn't breathe for years. Like I didn't, when he rolled it, when like he moved this down and it was like a bunch of sessions before like it actually like fully shifted and took place and, uh, and was able to hold. And And the reason why I spoke to it being a little over threshold is because, um, I almost felt like, um, for some reason, my body was holding it up because there was trauma stored in it being down, basically. Like, it was a contraction yeah. Yeah. to protect myself. And so, I once it finally went down, I was having all these other things happening. But then once it, once it kind of took place and, like, rooted in being down more often um, and just being able to breathe, I was just noticing that, like, I'm, I'm – my anxious attachment wasn't as up for me. My anxiety in general wasn't as up for me. Like my worrying about like, Oh my God, what, like, because you know, I'm an intern and I'm a single mom. Like my, my worrying about like what tomorrow brings and how am I going to for sure provide for my son, um, was less like it just was less. And, and I, and I really, and then I had this, um, anxiety, stricken day and I literally felt my diaphragm roll back up and um so I couldn't catch a deep breath like I had been breathing and for however long before it rolled back up again and he was out of town on his vacation so I couldn't get into him as quickly as I normally did so I had to sit with it for like a week and I was like, oh, I am so from like these thought processes and patterns are so familiar to me. And I noticed it was correlated to as soon as my diaphragm rolled up. And as soon as I was able to like have it worked back out, um, there was, it's not that it went fully away, but there was a relief to the system. Like it was like, so, and, and I just think that there's something really powerful there because, all the work I've done, like all the work, like all the years of therapy that I'm so grateful for, um, and have helped me in so many ways, like really didn't touch on this layer of what's going on. Right. So, yeah, exactly. And that's some beautiful somatic awareness that you have developed. (laughs) Um, thank you. it, It sounds tremendous. And, um, the one thing that comes to mind as I listen to you talk about your experience is like how important resourcing is because you, like your, your system was given a new option. Like, Hey, you know how to do this really well. You know how to get uptight and, you know, like tucked up into the ribcage really well. That worked for you for a long time. It was your go-to thing. That's like your coping skill that you learned how to do. And that's great. Um, and now we're going to try to learn how to do something else. <laughs> and so you can soften a little bit. But in 
those moments, it might be interesting to see if you can identify, if you think of, if you think of the rolled up diaphragm as like a, a resource, it's mm. interesting to see if there's like, it's almost like a transitional object. Like, is there, is there something in your body or a way, something you can do with your body that's almost like a teddy bear? Mm. Um, so, you know, like, okay, maybe, maybe we don't need to do the umbrella up in the ribcage thing. But here's this other thing that I know is really comforting, and we can use this as much as we need to while we're getting used to the diaphragm being in this new different place. Yeah, I love. And also, like, I love this reframe, and I think I think it's kind of embedded in something that you were speaking to earlier. Maybe the shame aspect, right? Because like I, like yeah. I, I, I mean, I think you saying it in such a kind, compassionate, loving way in this way made me realize I'm like. Oh, but my diaphragm rolls up, in, <laughs> up into my rib cage, like uh, right, right. <laughs> you know, like oh, it's right. really yeah, that's cool. Like, and it did, it did serve me, it got me through, right? I mean, like it, it was oh, man. the perfect yeah. mechanism um, for a long time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I love those because oh my, where would we be without them? Yeah, seriously, right? I mean, like. They, they, they are the skills that got us to where we are right now, and maybe right now in this moment we have an opportunity to make a different choice or try something new or test something out, try and experiment. Um, that's always available to us. Um, but but these, these coping skills that we developed are really their survival resources. That's right. They're, they they help get us where we are, um, and I give them a lot of respect. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I love it. I love it. This, like this conversation was really interesting and informative and I can't appreciate you enough right now. So thank you so much for, um, participating in this way. And I will, um, make sure I put your bio up on this podcast. So anybody who wants to get a hold of Amanda, what I will do is put the bio and then any way you would like to be, linked to people so they could contact you if you have your website or your phone number um make sure i have that so i can post that on all the social media and would you like to say your website right now absolutely i've got i've got two and one of them is in the works that's being developed right now the one that i have that's up and running is um my supervisor's website which is www.oaklandcouplescounseling.com oakland couples yeah, oaklandcouplescounseling.com. Okay. Um, my supervisor is Craig Tunder, and I'm listed on the providers page. Um, you can certainly contact me there. My phone number is 510-788-0424. Um, you can leave a message for me there. And I will shoot you over my new um, website um, that's going to be sort of geared towards the perinatal bereavement and trauma work. Um as soon as that's ready, I'll I'll make sure that you have the link to it. Okay, great. And I can't, seriously, thank you so very much. And everybody who has been listening and supporting, thank you so very much as well. I'm so happy to be on this journey with everyone and have a really great night. And you can find me on almost all the social media avenues at this point under Coleology. Um, take care, have a great night, and stay tuned.